Good morning. Well, as you know, my one-part message on holiness has grown to three parts. And one of the reasons for that is that I think it's important to distinguish the role of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in holiness. And so this message, the second, will be the holiness of Jesus Christ. And we could say the holiness which is achieved through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next and hopefully the last will be the holiness of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives to produce holiness in us. I do have a strange request to make of you. It's something I have never done before, and I suspect that none of you have done it either. And that is to try and place yourself in the sandals of the Pharisees. And if you can, for a moment, empathize with them about the difficulty that they faced with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Pharisees are the extreme example of that, but there is a sense in which they bring to the surface a tension which all Christians have to deal with when they move from the Old Testament and its teaching on holiness and the new. And I'll bring that out in a moment. We talked about holiness uh, two weeks ago, the holiness of the Father in the Old Testament. And I would say it was his exclusive excellence. It is the sum total of all of, our, of the Father's and, and the Son and the Spirit's perfections described by one word, holiness. It is his absolute otherness, which includes his absolute purity uh, and undefiled nature so far as sin and its corruption is concerned. Now, the implications of that are significant in the Old Testament and certainly in the New. But in the Old Testament, sinful men had to keep their distance from this holy God. Uh, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 3, God says to Moses, Listen, I'm going to send you on up into the land. My angel is going to go with you, but I'm not going because I would destroy you on the way. God's holiness requires men to keep their distance. So you've got the, the, the yellow tape around Mount Sinai. No man, no animal is to encroach upon that. Keep your distance. And that was done through the priesthood, through the tabernacle, uh, through many different means in the Old Testament. God's holiness means that his people who were chosen to be a holy nation, must remain separate from the Gentiles and specifically from the Canaanites. They might be corrupted. No, they would <laughs> be corrupted by those sins. And so they were to remain separate in order to be holy, distant and separate from the Canaanites, the people of the land. As a result of that teaching the Pharisees had come to the conclusion that holiness was really almost a spatial thing and that it really circled around, encompassed itself around the concept of separation. They needed to be separate from sinners. And they had almost that snarl in their voice as they spoke in those terms. I believe that while they recognized those messianic texts of the Old Testament, speaking of God's provision 
of holiness. I think in their minds, they read it this way. We are now occupied by Roman officials, Roman rule. God's holiness means God's going to kick the Romans out and we're going to be a nation that is separate and distant from any external forces. So they looked for Messiah, but they looked for a military Messiah that was going to rid them from Rome and therefore separate, as it were, this nation from all of the Gentiles. The problem comes when Jesus comes, and there are many texts that symbolize this but uh, and indicate this, but Mark chapter 3 would be one such text. And that is there came a point where the Pharisees had to do something about all of this data, not only the claims that Jesus made, but the authority with which he made them and the power with, with which he operated. You can go with John 9 for a while, the, the healing of the man born blind, and you can play the game of, well, maybe it really wasn't him. Uh, and, and, and they tried that. But the reality is, it became evident that man was the man born blind and Jesus had healed him. Now you must come to the conclusion, how do I deal with the fact that I don't like what Jesus represents, but I can't deny the reality of his power? And in Mark chapter 3, the solution is you regard him as having power, but you call that power the power of Satan himself. It is through Beelzebul, the prince of of demons that it comes. Now, notice what Jesus did that rattles their cage, their separatistic cage. Jesus comes and he appears to break all of the rules. And in their minds, the rules and the law were synonymous. They obviously had add-ons to the law, but they thought of their rules as the law. For example, Jesus broke the Sabbath by their definition. By healing on the Sabbath, he was working. By the disciples gathering grain on the Sabbath, they were defiling the Sabbath. Jesus was a Sabbath breaker in their minds. In Matthew 15, the issue is the washing of hands. Why doesn't Jesus and his disciples go through all these ceremonial rituals about hand washings? Now, this isn't really sanitation hand washing. This is ceremonial hand washing, and they were bent out of shape about the fact that Jesus didn't do it. Jesus touched the unclean. He didn't just say to a leper, be cleansed. He touched the leper, which was an absolute prohibition in their minds. How could Jesus possibly defile himself by touching uh, sinners? And to go one note further on that, how could he defile himself by his association with sinners? You know, one of the things that separated the Jews and the Gentiles was their table fellowship. With all the ceremonial ritual food laws, you didn't uh, associate with Gentiles at the table. And here is Jesus sitting at the table with people who were obviously, to the Pharisees, great sinners. And there was the question of fasting. Why didn't Jesus and his disciples fast like John the Baptist and like uh, good Pharisees did. The problem was that Jesus not only broke all of these rules, but he claimed and accepted the worship of people of him as the Holy One of God. And, and let me just uh, give you a couple of illustrations of that. He claims deity 
when he says to the one who's lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. They immediately, the Pharisees immediately reason to themselves, wait a minute, only God can forgive sins. Jesus is claiming deity, and therefore, of course, he would be holy. You have uh, John chapter 5, where Jesus uh, has uh, dealt with this man at the pool of Bethesda, you remember? And, and when they criticize Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. He says, I am doing what my father does. I, I do what I see my father doing. And all of a sudden you're saying, whoa, that's a whole lot bigger claim than just Sabbath breaking. He claims to be God. And in John chapter 8, you remember he says, before Abraham was, I am. And up came the stones because they wanted to do away with Jesus. So Jesus does what he does with great authority. And uh, not only that, he takes on the Pharisees. He doesn't just do his ministry and say nothing uh, about uh, uh, the, the Pharisees. He attacks them and he starts right at the, uh, at the beginning of the game in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not making it to heaven. Can you imagine that? Jesus' introductory message in the book of Matthew, and he basically says, the people you think are the most pious, and if you don't, they do. Those people aren't making it to heaven. That's incredible, because they thought of themselves as the gatekeepers of heaven. They were the ones who decided whether other people got there. And Jesus says, you're not going to be there if you're relying on their kind of righteousness. Matthew chapter 23, that chapter of woes. He takes on the Pharisees and their hypocrisy in the strongest of words. So here's this conflict that comes up. The conflict of Jesus who doesn't fit the Pharisaical view of holiness And yet he claims to be God, claims to have authority, and he actively attacks them. Now, I'm not saying that you ought to agree with the Pharisees, but can you understand how a Pharisee could be really bent out of shape with the coming of Jesus? I mean, it was just unbelievable, the conflict. There was was a head-on collision that came with the coming of our Lord Jesus. How important is this? How important is the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees or or Jesus and Judaism or the uh, Old Testament with the New? Well, this whole issue explains the intensity of the opposition between Judaism and Christianity. Does it not? It explains the opposition to Jesus in the Gospels by Judaism and the fact that they are the ones who instigate the crucifixion of our Lord. It also explains the intensity of the opposition to the gospel and its preaching in the book of Acts and in the rest of the epistles. When you have uh, Paul, who is so committed to, to doing this, he believes he is serving God. How do you explain this conflict? Well, that's what we're going to seek to do. And it also explains our Lord's opposition to the Pharisees. Jesus isn't neutral with respect to Pharisaism. Jesus comes out, as it were, guns blazing against Pharisaism. So this will explain, I believe, not only their opposition to him, but his opposition to them. 
The issue at hand is the purity of the gospel, not only as it relates to salvation, but as it relates to sanctification. I link those two because Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Galatians, Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit through law keeping? In other words, you can't change the rules between salvation and sanctification. It's the same. And so the doctrine that relates to salvation and sanctification is crucial. And that's why in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are following a different gospel. Not that there really is another gospel, but there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. And you remember he says, anyone coming to you preaching that kind of gospel, let him be accursed. And if I didn't get that clear, Paul said, let me say it another time. Let him be accursed. That's how important this issue is. It is the issue that defines in many ways the nature of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I believe that our study today of the holiness of Christ is the key to understanding the New Testament, especially in its relationship to the old. How does one attain holiness? This, I think, message and the holiness of our Lord is the key to that. You'll notice that there are a number of texts that I've listed there, Matthew 15 and Mark 3, which are parallel accounts. The whole issue of Acts 10 and 11, the sheet being lowered out of heaven, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean, and the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. I believe the key to understanding the New Testament, especially the epistles, is to understand the nature of the difference as we see it between holiness according to Jesus and holiness according to Pharisaism. So what I want to do is I want to talk about the essence of the issue for Christians, not just Pharisees, but for Christians as we read our Old Testaments and our New, and then talk about the solution to that problem as I see it in Jesus Christ, and then some of the implications that will flow out of that. Now, I don't know where Ken is, but Ken was raising the question of whether or not I change my notes, and the one I, I do. And one of the things that happens is that it's on PowerPoint. So when I do, I just ignore my PowerPoint for a minute and, and uh, say what I want to say. So while I'm going to talk about the source of uh, the solution to the uh, conflict, I first of all want to put this now in more biblical terms. We can understand somewhat, if we think like a Pharisee, we can understand why Pharisees would be very distressed with Jesus and his teaching. But the reality is all Christians ought to have a, a little bit of a twinge as they move from the Old Testament and its holiness to the new. And so you're saying to yourself, look at this. There is, God is so holy that men cannot even look upon him. And now we read in the Gospels in John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus comes and he dwells upon, amongst men and men touch him, they handle him, they're with him. And you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What happened between the Old Testament and its barricades and the Holy God dwelling amongst men? How do we, how do we resolve that? How do we answer that biblically? How do we take this whole issue of separation where the law spelled out these ways in which 
God and sinners were to be separate and Israel and, and other nations were to be separate. How do we square that with the fact that Jesus associates with sinners? I mean, isn't there a little bit of a rub there for you? Isn't there a little bit of a tension that says, hmm, how is that that we can move so dramatically from the Old Testament and its separation to now the incarnation of our Lord where he is dwelling amongst sinful men? Well, okay, now let's talk about the solution as, uh, as we have it in the New Testament, I believe. One, Jesus is the Holy One of God. It is interesting to do a, a search through the New Testament and find the, the texts that relate to that. There are a number of texts that specifically refer to our Lord Jesus as holy. But there are also texts that inferentially do. When Jesus says to the opposition, who is there among you who finds fault with me? If he's faultless, then he is holy. So there are a number of texts. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Gabriel says to Mary that this one that is going to be born within her womb is going to be born by the Holy Spirit and he will be the Holy One of God, this holy offspring. Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demons refer to the Lord Jesus as the Holy One of God. Now Jesus silences them, not because they're wrong, but because he didn't want testimony from them. But they recognized him as the Holy One. In Acts chapter 2, verse 27, when, when Peter is giving his great message there at Pentecost, he applies the text uh, that we find in Psalm 16, and he says, God will not hit, allow his Holy One to suffer corruption. And Peter makes it clear. He's not talking about David. In that psalm, he's talking about Christ. And so the resurrection is the fulfillment of Psalm 16, and Psalm 16 is speaking about the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Other texts would be uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, which speaks of our Lord as the great high priest and his holiness in that way. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 when our Lord is addressing the church at Philadelphia, he identifies himself to them as the Holy One. So there is no question about the fact that our Lord Jesus is holy, just as God the Father is holy. Jesus makes it clear that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Now, in the minds of the Pharisees, when Jesus broke their rules... He broke the law. And Jesus says, no, that is not true. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Then that interesting text in Mark chapter 2, which I have never really read in this context, but it just suddenly made sense to me, where in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to put a patch on an old garment Jesus didn't come to supercharge the law. He came to do something new. And so he talks about placing new wine in new wineskins. There is something new about what takes place in the New Testament, as Jesus made clear. Now, think about the reasons for the separation 
of, uh, that was required in the Old Testament. This, I think, is interesting. When men were to be separate from God, as you saw in the, 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 the law, the, the tabernacle, all of the barriers between men and God, it is not because God might be corrupted by their contact. God is incorruptible. He is the incorruptible God. Contact with sinners is not going to hurt God. <laughs> it sure is going to hurt men. So that when God sets those barriers, he sets those barriers for man's benefit. Right? He sets those barriers, as Exodus 33.3 says, so that God won't destroy them by being in too close a proximity with them. And the separation of the, the Israelites from the Gentiles is because while God is incorruptible, it's very clear to us the Israelites are corruptible. And their contact with the Canaanites would further corrupt them. And therefore, God is restricting their contact with Canaanites for the Israelites' protection because of their corruptibility. Here's the key text. Here's the critical text. You can see it in Mark chapter 7, but I want to go to it from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Actually, this is part of a, of a considerably larger argument, but I want you to start in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. Oh, by the way, the feeding of the 5,000 has occurred in Matthew 14. Feeding of the 5,000, Matthew 14. Matthew 15, you have the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're asking why Jesus and his disciples are eating their bread with unwashed hands. Why are they not going through those ceremonial washings that would be especially true of Pharisaism? Um, and Jesus then basically says to them, it's interesting to me the way you have taken your traditions and superimposed them on the law in such a way as to do away with the law. And he goes on to talk about that, that command to honor your father and your mother. And remember how they used the, the Corban rule and they basically set aside their resources in what they called Corban. Now you could go to... to uh, to the Caribbean on a cruise with Corban money, but you couldn't pay the, uh, the medical uh, facility where your parents ought to be cared for uh, out of that money. And, and Jesus says, that's the hypocrisy that you have with your rules. You honor me with your lips, but you teach the precepts of men as the doctrines of God. Then he calls the multitude in verse 10, and he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, that defiles the man. Then the disciples came. I love this. The disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? <laughs> oh, let them hurt. You know, this is where I can't empathize. I love to see their agony. Jesus answered in verse 13 and said, Every plant which my father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And then the disciple Peter asked Jesus to explain the parable in verse 
15. And Jesus says, are you still also without understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. These are the things that defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Now there is a whole new way of thinking. When you're thinking in separatistic terms, you're thinking that it's that external interaction, that external contact, that external touching of these things that somehow defiles. And Jesus says, sin doesn't come from without. It originates within. Which being interpreted means the solution to sin is not external separation. The solution to sin is something that happens internally, not externally. Okay, let's look at our next point. The solution is not to attempt to reform man by striving harder to keep the Old Testament, but to create a new covenant and a new man. When the, when the scriptures speak about this whole matter of holiness and how it's produced in the life of men, it's all about something new as opposed to something old. So when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, God is, is giving the, uh, the law again through Moses to these people about to possess the land. But God says, oh, that these people, that their hearts were circumcised. And God says, when I reform this people, I'm going to circumcise their hearts. And then they will love to do those things that I have commanded. So what he's saying is, here are all these rules. They're never going to work until men's hearts change. And that's why you see in Jeremiah 31, and and in particular in Ezekiel 36, the prophet says, when he cleanses Israel, he is going to change their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. What is the solution to a corrupt heart? Not Not a valve repair, a new heart, a new heart. That is the solution to the corruption that is in the heart. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant back in in, uh, Genesis chapter 12 and following, you see God making the promise that out of Abraham's seed, he's going to bring about this blessing which comes. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, the seed to which God is referring is not Abraham's physical offspring in total, It is Abraham's offspring who is Jesus in particular. Therefore, all of the blessings that God promised to bring about for Israel and for the nations is a blessing that comes about through Jesus, the one who is the ultimate seed of Abraham. Therefore, when you come to Romans chapter 5, I've got a number of texts there, but I want to land on Romans 5. When you come to Romans chapter 5, the question that I believe that Paul is answering there as he has laid out salvation is by faith, chapter 4, not by law, chapter 3, actually chapters 1 through 3. But in chapter 5, the question is, how could it be that through one man the whole world can be saved from their sins? How is it that, that many can be saved through one person? And he says, 
it's because of how sin started. Through the one man, Adam, transgression and death came to all. Through Jesus Christ comes salvation for all who believe. So here you have the old uh, creation in Adam, the new creation that comes about in Christ. It is a new creation, not a reformation of the old. It isn't, let's fix Adam. It's, let's have a new creation in 1 Corinthians 15. would call him, not the second Adam, calls him the last Adam. First Adam brought about death. The last Adam is our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings about salvation. He brings about eternal life. He brings about the resurrection from the dead. He is the last Adam. It is not through fixing the first Adam. It is through the coming of the second Adam that salvation comes. And therefore, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, or new things have come. That's what is needed, not fixing what's broken, but replacing what's broken with the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only through his work as that, uh, as that, uh, that last Adam, as that real seed of Abraham, as that one who brings about new hearts. He's the one who brings salvation. So, salvation and holiness is not really about separation. It's about incarnation. Is it not? Salvation is not about God keeping separate from this world. It is God coming into this world. Incarnation, as we celebrate every week, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus where he manifested his holiness to men and he died bearing the sin of men, wonder of wonders, the sin of men so that we might now be in Christ and in Christ we partake of his righteousness, of his nature. Now here's an interesting text. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. The more I look at this, the more I see the Sermon on the Mount as, as the real gauntlet that Jesus throws down that spells out, in effect, the essence of what he and his ministry are about. But you remember, it, it, you went through all the, uh, the Beatitudes of those who are blessed, but look at what he says then when he comes to uh, verse uh, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth... But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it become, uh, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is our role in this world as Christians is to be salty and light. And you don't do that by being removed from the world. You don't do that by physical separation. You do that by being in the world and not losing your distinctiveness 
as those who were the children of God. So that is the way we see our Lord Jesus. When he came to this earth, his, his glory was veiled, but men could see in him what God was like. They saw the attributes of God lived out through Christ. He could not be defiled by the world, but he could live out holiness in the world and then, of course, because he was holy, bear the sins of men. So it seems to me that the Gospels make it clear. It is not about physical separation. I didn't say there is no such thing as physical separation. There are some places we should not be. But the essence of the teaching of the Scriptures is not so much about being away from sinners as being in the midst of sinners and living like Christians. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when he's talking about the man who is living with his father's uh, wife, he says, I'm not talking to you about separation and what you do about sinners. I'd have to take you out of the world. You're in the world. I'm saying when you as a church gather together and you have somebody professing to know the Lord Jesus and denying the very things that he has said for us to do, then you separate from him. You don't separate yourself from the world. So what are some of the implications of all of that for us? As we approach Christmas, it, it just struck me as I was thinking about our Lord Jesus and the way in which he came to this sinful, defiled, corrupt, really unwelcoming world. And I thought to myself, isn't it amazing that the holy God the holy God who is repulsed by sin would take on human flesh and would dwell in the midst of sinners. And I'm not just talking about the, the, the vilest of men. I'm not even talking about the cleaned up, uh, self-righteous sinners like the Pharisees. I'm thinking about guys like the disciples where Peter is taking Jesus aside and he whacks him as it were. And he says, I'm not going to hear any more about this, this cross. And, and, and so when I read in Hebrews that throughout our Lord's life, he cried out, I see throughout his earthly life, there was a sense of agony about being in the midst of this place with, with men who really disregarded the holiness of God. What a wonder it is that when we come to the time when we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord, think about who it was who came to take on flesh and dwell amongst sinful men. That to me is something we will never really fathom. I want to go back for a moment, if I can cheat again from my notes, to Matthew chapter 15. Here's what's interesting. Pharisees grouse at Jesus not uh, doing the hand-washing thing. Jesus then gives this thing about corruption comes from uh, within and not from without. What's the next story? Verse 21 and following. Jesus goes and he is approached. He's in the area of, of Tyre and Sidon. My understanding is that's Gentile territory. And he is approached, verse 22, by a Canaanite woman. Now think about that from an Old Testament point of view. Canaanites were to be annihilated. 
Here is this Canaanite woman who asked that Jesus would give deliverance to her daughter who's demon-possessed. And Jesus gives this thing about, I came not uh, to, to the Gentiles. We would say parenthetically at this moment in time, my focus is not Gentiles, but the nation Israel. And then he says to her, it's not right to take from the table and give that to the dogs. And she says, yeah, but even the puppies, they they get the scraps under the table, as any of us who have pets know. Uh, that's, That's something that God does in his mercy. The thing that's interesting to me is, here is this woman who personifies the essence of what is loathed in the Old Testament from a separationist point of view. And she comes away with her request granted. Why? Because of her faith, right? If you pursue then this matter into chapter 16, that's where you have this whole issue of the uh, great confession and the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in whom? Faith in whom? And what Jesus makes clear, what Matthew makes clear in the unfolding of this gospel is, it is not just faith in and of itself. It is faith in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah who will suffer and die. That's where salvation comes from. Rightly understanding the gospel. When you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 30, down through those first 13 verses or so of chapter 10, Paul says an amazing thing. He says, it is the Gentiles who were not working, who were not seeking, who found salvation, and the Jews who were working their tails off at separation. It was the Jews who didn't find it. The issue of the gospel is not, you need to try harder to be righteous. The issue of the gospel is, you need to recognize you aren't righteous. You never will be by self-effort. Righteousness comes through Christ. He is the one who came down to provide righteousness for men. He is the one who came to bear the sins of men on himself so that we would not be punished. It's all about the gospel and the holiness of our Lord, I think, is central to all of that. Sanctification God's way. Sanctification then ought not to be thought of primarily, primarily in terms of rule keeping. I must do this, I must not do that. Sanctification is primarily by our identif- by exclusively by our identification with Christ and it's maintained primarily by abiding in him. It's his righteousness that is worked out in our lives. That's what 2 Peter chapter 1 is about. It's about him working out his nature in the life of his believers through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus and his spirit. And it's about living in the world without being of the world. It's being amongst sinners, but being distinct from them so that they see God in our lives. Holiness and evangelism. Here's here's one to ponder, and I don't have nice, neat, little three-point answers for this or anything else. Isn't it interesting to you that our Lord, holiness made flesh, was so repugnant and repulsive to the self-righteous and so attractive to sinners 
Doesn't, doesn't that just boggle your mind? Why is it that sinners were drawn to Jesus and the self-righteous were repulsed from him? And, and I say to you, I, I think as a believer, it is really easy for us, it's really easy for me as a preacher, to rail about all of the sins that are going on outside these walls and to pick certain labels and certain categories of sin and, and to preach to the choir and everybody's shaking their head saying, boy, they sure deserve God's wrath. Why is it that those people were drawn to Jesus? And why is it that the holy church-going folks, I know they weren't uh, church-going in the sense that we may think of, but, but they were really religious folks. Why is it that those people were so offended with Jesus? It's because... The self-righteous think it's something they can do, and they don't want charity. It's the unrighteous who have recognized it's nothing they can do other than cast themselves on Jesus. So I would say when it comes to the whole issue of evangelism, we need to ask ourselves, are we winsome to unbelievers? Are we winsome to unbelievers? I know there are ways in which we won't be. First Peter chapter 4 says, don't be surprised. <laughs> When you live out your life and you don't do the things they did, the things you used to do, they're not going to like it. But there's also a sense in which those who are without hope, those who know that there is nothing they can do to attain righteousness, are they drawn to us and to our gospel? Next, the wonder of Paul's conversion. You know, when you think about the Pharisees and, and, and all of the built-in hostility and opposition that there was to our Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't choose any Pharisee to be among his 12 disciples until Paul? Until Paul. Now, I don't want to argue about who's number 12. All I'm trying to say is, isn't it interesting that the greatest theologian of the New Testament is a man who came out of Phariseeism and saw the emptiness and the folly of it. Philippians 3. He says, you know, when it comes to their kind of righteousness, I was at the head of the class. But all of those things I count but dung, that I may know him, that I may have his righteousness. What, when you read Paul's epistles, you need to keep that in mind. Paul was a man who was a true Pharisee, and God changed his heart. And we ought to delight. Every time we read a word from Paul about grace, we ought to delight, because it didn't come easily. It came miraculously. One last point. The holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ is something we celebrate every week. I keep beating on this drum, and I'm not sure whether everybody agrees with me, but I would say this. When you look at those two elements, it's the cup that signifies the death of our Lord. It's the bread that signifies the incarnation and the perfection of our Lord. There is no value in the cup unless there is value in his life, in his sinless, holy, perfect life. So as we come together every week and as we partake of that bread... We are celebrating the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what makes his sacrifice special and saving. If you happen to be here this morning and you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus, forsake all efforts at self-help.
and recognize that the law was established primarily to show us that God is holy and we're not. The only way to be holy is through the one holy one who has come to this earth, lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners, and offers eternal life to you. Trust in him. It's all about him. It's all about him. Not about us and not about rules. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, the Holy One of God. May we worship him. May we exalt him. May we cast ourselves upon him. And may we wonder when we read in Hebrews that we can draw near to him. May we do so. First of all, by trusting in the Lord Jesus for salvation. And then by looking to him for all righteousness and every good thing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.